Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. What we know as the Protestant Reformation began on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, a Catholic monk, nailed 95 theses, 95 arguments against Catholic dogma and um, sacramental law to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Obviously, that would cause quite a stir. And in the years after that, by 1520, Luther had written numerous books, pamphlets, theses against the Catholic Church, against the, the papacy, uh, including a book titled On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And in that book, he basically compares the Catholic Church to Babylon. And as Babylon took the Jews captive, the Catholic Church is taking Christians captive to uh, the, the sacraments and the teachings of the Catholic Church. Not surprising, Pope Leo X had had enough of Luther's railings against the church and against him personally. And on June 15th, 1520, he issued what is known as a papal bull. And it is a a document that is telling Luther to recant his positions because they're heresy or he'd be excommunicated from the church. Now, excommunication today would has no teeth to it. It literally means nothing. You just can't go to that church anymore. But in Luther's day, because the Holy Roman Empire ran the world, the known world there, excommunication not only kicked you out of the church, but was an opportunity for the church to brand you as a heretic and then, should they want to, burn you at the stake. So this was a a um, a, a well-thought-out option from the Pope to get rid of Luther. He had 60 days to recant his position. Luther responded to the papal bull, but he responded in December, several months after it was issued. He responded by taking the the document and burning it in public. So clearly Luther was really shaken up by the, the papal bull. Early in 1521, an assembly of the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire, called a meeting in the city of Worms, and Luther was summoned and told he had to show up before the committee to either renounce or reaffirm his positions regarding the papal bull and the papacy and other things that he had said. Luther was naturally afraid to travel from his home to the city of Worms in fear that anybody acting on the Catholic Church's behest could could kidnap him, take him, and execute him. So a prince actually gave him a document issuing him fair passage, safe passage. So if anybody were to try to arrest him, he could show he had a document. They would leave him alone. So Luther appeared at the, uh, called the Diet of Worms, on April 18th. The presiding officer was Archbishop Johann Eck, and Eck brought out 25 books and articles that Luther had written in condemning the Catholic Church and the papacy. And he asked the question, quote, Martin Luther, do you recant of the heresies in your writings? Do you you defend them all, or do you care to reject part? End quote. Luther was quiet. He was 
careful in his answer. He was even seemingly timid. And he said this, quote, This touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, He who denies me before men, him will I, will, I will deny before the Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous. I beg you, give me time to think it over. End quote. Now, to be fair, Luther had already had months to think it over. But the council gave him 24 hours. That night, Luther went gathered with his friends and they prayed how they, how Luther should respond. What should he say? Is there anything asking God to reveal? Is there anything in there that I need to uh, repent from? Anything that is wrong? What should I, how should I handle this? So the next morning, the council gathered and Luther was there and Eck asked the question again. He said, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? This time Luther spoke loudly. And he spoke in German and then in Latin. And he said, quote, Since then your majesty and your leadership desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And he sat down. At that moment, Luther's massive fear of God totally erased any fear of man he had. And that's the kind of fear that needs to exist in churches today. To fear God more than the fear of man. The fear of man drives the agendas of far too many Christians and thus far too many churches in the world. Fear of what men might say, what they might think, what they might do. Has caused churches to adjust and and. Uh, minimize their theology and their faith and practice in order to not offend. They're fearful of not being liked by people. Fear of disappointing people. Fear of being hurt by people. Fear of not being thought of uh, in, in a nice way by people. And that fear has determined how many Christians live. And if we're all honest, every one of us will say on some level, at some point in time, we struggle with the fear of man. What will people think? If I take this stand for the Lord, if I boldly proclaim Christ, what will my family members say? What will my neighbors think? The fear of man has kept many Christians from ever sharing their faith with another person. Oh, they may pray that that person gets saved, but when the Holy Spirit says, well, you will tell them. No, 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 I can't tell them. Well, I work with that person. It'll be really awkward if they respond negatively when I work with them all the time. So I, I can't say anything. Or that family gathering where the family is clearly anti-Christ. Well, I can't say anything to them because they just don't understand. They won't listen anyway. And if we're honest, we say that's really the fear of man speaking. 
Fear of man keeps many Christians from making Jesus Christ the number one priority of their life. Other things take the priority. Other things trump their life so they don't have to try to defend the Christian faith. Many people, because of fear of man, will never tell another living soul that they love Jesus outside of the church. The fear of man is a very real issue. And as our world runs away from everything that has to do with righteousness and and the gap between Christ and the world gets ever broader, the the opportunities or the the necessity of Christians fighting the world increases. As the world takes the things of God and begins to ridicule them and exalts the things that God calls as, what God calls sin, for a Christian to stand up and say, I stand with God and the Bible is to be opposing society and that fear has kept many Christians from being willing to do that. If we're going to stand for Christ, we're going to, we're going to do battle on a daily basis. In some parts of the world more than others, and it's going to be more severe than others. Really, for us in the western part of the world, we don't deal with that much opposition. But the opposition we do is enough to cause us to keep our mouth shut if we're not careful. Well, Jesus has gone a few rounds here of verbal pugilism with the Pharisees and the lawyers. And he knows he's about to leave in in fairly short order, all things being considered. And he's going to leave his disciples to fight this battle with the world. This world that is in opposition to the things of God, they're going to have to either stand up for God and against the world, or they're going to crumble under the fear of man and won't listen to the gospel. The lawyers and the Pharisees have publicly claimed that Jesus was only able to cast out a demon because he was empowered by Satan. Jesus exposed the foolishness of their claims and the wickedness of that generation who only wanted to see entertainment, wasn't really interested in truth. At lunch later that day at the Pharisee's house, he was just critical in his heart of Jesus who didn't wash his hands before eating. Jesus turned that in the opportunity to reveal the wickedness of the Pharisee's heart, saying you clean up the outside of the cup, but the inside's full of poison. It's full of wickedness. He he criticized them for their, their neglect. They did some things that God required, but they neglected the most important things that God required. Justice and mercy and love. They're corrupt. And they were corrupting everybody that came into contact with them. And the lawyer said, hey, but Jesus, when you say those things to the Pharisees, you offend us. Jesus said, don't worry, I got my own offense for you. He says, you put burdens on people that you would never think about touching yourself. You make laws that you have no intention on fulfilling. You apply these things to other people. You say you honor the prophets and you, you believe everybody that got a sent yet it, in their heart they were plotting to kill Jesus. As experts of the law, they were obscuring the gospel in the scripture to the point that it's putting roadblocks on the road to salvation. Nobody that they spoke to was going to see Christ. 
And from that point on, the Pharisees and the lawyers would seek for opportunity to find Jesus saying something they could accuse him of. And they were hoping he would blaspheme so they could sentence him to death. They were hostile towards him from that point on. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples, this is the world I'm sending you into. A hostile environment. You are, you're going to be sent like sheep into the midst of wolves. So Jesus takes time to prepare his disciples in an openly hostile world. Chapter 12, verse 1, the first half of the verse says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were stepping on one another. Though the religious and societal and political leaders of Israel hated Jesus and wanted him dead, it didn't stop thousands of people from coming out, whether out of sincerity or whether out of curiosity, wanting to see what Jesus might do, might listen to what he might say, even if they didn't believe it. But there's so many people that they're, Luke says, are literally stepping on one another. Now, Jesus is going to address his disciples in the next two chapters. He's going to alternate between directing, addressing his disciples and addressing the crowds. So Jesus is there, the disciples are right around him, and he's going to first address them in the first 12 verses, and then he's going to turn to the entire crowd. But the entire crowd is still there listening as he addresses his disciples. It would be similar to you walking uh, through a uh, in, in through a, a college campus and by a classroom and the door is open and you hear the professor teaching and you stop and you lean in the door and you listen for a little while. You're not really one of the students in the class, but you're listening to what the teacher is telling the students. That's similar to what's happening here. He's addressing his disciples as everybody else is welcome to eavesdrop on what he has to say. So Jesus begins by telling his disciples, beware of religious hypocrisy. Beware of religious hypocrisy. The end of verse 1 says, He began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven, you might know it as yeast. uh, And and most of you understand that that is used to make dough rise. And I'm sure you can use it in other things. But that's the most common uh, use of yeast. In the Bible, it is often used as a metaphor for sin or wickedness or bad behavior. It was first used that way in in uh, Passover. When the Jews were getting ready to leave Egypt, they are going to have this Passover meal. They're going to wear their travel clothes, have their coats on, their hats on. They're not to sit down at dinner. They're to stand up. They're to eat in haste. And they're going to be ready to leave at, a, at any moment. Uh, that's the Passover meal. But prior to that, the preparation for that, they're to go through their house and remove any leaven, any yeast from their house. Take their container, set it outside somewhere, sweep the floors, make sure there's none on the ground. And this becomes a metaphor for confession and repentance of sin. Getting sin out, confessing that sin, searching your heart and seeing what wickedness is there and getting that right with God. They're gonna, God wants them to remember the feast of Passover for uh, the rest of time, every year they're to commemorate the Feast of Passover. And the next day after Passover begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a week-long celebration where they, they the Jews have removed the leaven from their homes. They don't bake uh, leaven into their bread. It, they just It's a, a flat, dense bread. Typically, they would 
use the leaven. They would make it rise. It would be nice, fluffy wonder bread. They could put peanut butter and jelly on it and things like that. But then it just became this dense, uh, almost a cracker type thing that they would eat without any leaven in it. But that was to remind them of what happened in leaving Egypt and to remind them to rid themselves of sin. Jesus reminds them here, or warns them here, of the leaven of the Pharisees. In Matthew 16, verses 6 and 11, he warned them of the leaven of the Sadducees. And in Mark 8, 15, he warns them against the leaven of Herod. But here it's uh, it's defined as hypocrisy. This He's warning them this hypocrisy, like leaven, will infiltrate the entire group of people if you're not careful. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and Galatians 5, 9, Paul wrote the same line. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You take a little bit, you put it in there, it's going to permeate the entire thing. I have personally never seen, I don't know if it can happen, that you could just put, you take this yeast and you put it in warm water and you stir it up and you stick it in the dough. You typically knead the dough until it permeates the whole loaf. I'm not sure if you could... Take it, just stick it in one side, and one part of the loaf would rise, and the rest would say flat. I've never seen that, so I don't know that it can happen. But the metaphor that Paul is saying is, "Hey, get leaven in there. It's going to it's going to permeate the entire group. It's going to permeate everything." And specifically talking about the church, you let a little bit of sin exist unchecked in the church, it's going to permeate the entire church. So in your life, it's the same thing. You find that little leaven in your life, that little sin that you're acquiescing to, it's going to permeate and infect your entire life. James again defines this, the leaven of the Pharisees, specifically as hypocrisy. It's wearing a mask. It's appearing one way with the mask on and another thing behind the mask. The word literally comes from the word for actors. And at that point in time, actors used masks. They had the happy mask and the frown mask, and they would, depending on the character, change the mask. And they were known as hypocrites, two-faced, two different faces. So a hypocrite becomes this actor who's portraying one thing in the public, but is really something else behind the scenes. The Pharisees, for their part, were actors who were acting like spiritual godly men. So they would go out in public and they would be on stage. And they would play their role as spiritual men. But behind the masks, they were ungodly. This has happened for far too long within the church. It's a real danger among Christians, this hypocrisy. This being one thing in public and being another thing in private. And I think there's some reasons for it. There Main reason is, as Christians, we are called to radical transformation. Radical transformation in our life. We are to be like Christ. We are to be becoming more and more like Christ. We are to put off the old and put on the new. There's a radical transformation that takes place in our life. And when we don't live up to that, becomes the idea that we ought to convince others that we have. So we put on the mask. And for many church-going people, that mask is is conveniently located, hanging on the wall as you walk out the door to go to church. And you come to church, and and everything looks great. The facade looks wonderful. 
And nobody knows that you're really struggling with sin. Because you don't feel like you can tell anybody. Well, what will people think? What will they say? If they know I'm struggling with this particular area of sin, if anybody but the pastor knows, or even if the pastor knows, or somebody, what will they think? That is the fear of man. I'm fearful for what people might think, what they might say. They might reject me. And consequently, you come to church and, and it's and it's so widespread that the guy who's really struggling with sin comes to church and he looks around and he thinks everybody else has got their act together and he's the only one who's struggling. He comes to church thinking, I'm the only one with this struggle. No one else has the struggle that I have. No one else is derailed on a regular basis by the sin that I'm derailed by. Because everybody else looks like they've got it together. And new believers have the same issue. They, they look around, they think everybody's so spiritual. They're all, they're all, uh, walking this walk. They've got their life together and I can't figure out how to get my life together. And they either feel like they'll never accomplish anything. They'll never accomplish anything for Christ. They'll always be second class Christians or they join the club and they start faking it as well. Hypocrisy is an ever-present danger for us as Christians. Now, some people are able to perpetuate a false image for a long period of time. And rather than seeking the help to gain the victory over sin and truly becoming more righteous, they spend the vast majority of their time and effort polishing their mask. Trish used to be in retail management, and I would hear the stories of these ways these thieves would come in and steal product and then return it and try to get money, in it, or they'd get a store credit and they'd buy something else, and then they'd go to another store and return it, so I don't have the receipt, and they would just perpetuate this problem. And they went through all these elaborate things to try to get free stuff, steal stuff from the store, and then get money for it. And I would say if these thieves would just put as much effort into a job as they put into stealing stuff, they wouldn't have to steal anything. And the same is true of believers. If we will put as much effort into working through of putting off the old and putting on the new as we put into fooling people into thinking we've already done that, it would be much more beneficial. The Pharisees focused on their polished spiritual facade. But no matter how many people you fool, and no matter how long you fool them for, you never fool God. God is never fooled. He always knows what's in our heart. We fight, we try to hide things in the dark so no one else will see. No one else sees. I'm the only one who sees what I'm doing. God sees. Perfectly clear. He says in verse 2, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Now, whether God exposes your sin to the people on earth or not, He still knows. Now, He doesn't always expose people's sin on the earth, but He often does. 
those secret things that we think nobody else knows about, God has a way of revealing them to the world. But whether he does or he doesn't, at one point you're going to stand before God and he's going to reveal everything. He's going to see it as bright as day. Nothing is going to be hidden away in the darkness. Full disclosure is coming one day for all of us. Whatever you think you've hidden, God will reveal. Look at verse 3. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in the inner room will be proclaimed from the housetops. Whatever sinful thing you've tried to hide in the dark will be exposed to the light of Christ. Every sinful whisper that you think you've uttered will be broadcast for all to hear. This is why we confess our sin and let God cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, when I was growing up, I would hear a message along this line, a passage like this. And I would hear preachers say things like this, that when we die as Christians, we're going to go to heaven and God is going to have a giant movie screen up there. And he's going to play back the movie of our life. And it's just the highlights of all of our sin. And, and every bad thing we've done or thought will be displayed in heaven for all to see. And I remember thinking, particularly as a teenage boy, I don't want to go to heaven. Because it doesn't sound heavenly to me. It sounds like the exact opposite. Now, when you receive Christ, your sin is forgiven. And that sin is forgiven and it is removed as far as east is from the west. God is not keeping a ledger of all of your sinful activity so that he can play it back for the entire population of heaven. I mean, just volume one of mine would take forever. But he's forgiven me. And I've been justified as just as if I'd never sinned. But I am to confess my ongoing sin since salvation. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and he came to Peter. and Peter first objects to it. And then Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't belong to me. And he said, well, just wash my feet, my hands, and my head. And Jesus said, you don't need a whole bath. You just need your feet washed. Speaking of, you've already been saved. The sin has already been taken care of. But there's the daily grime that needs to be washed off. There's that daily sin. That's that regular sin that we're involved in that we confess so that Jesus forgives that. You're hiding that. You're pretending that doesn't exist in your life. Those are the things that God is saying. That's going to be proclaimed from the housetops. Those are the things that are going to be revealed. Those things that we're not laying before the throne, seeking victory over. Spiritual hypocrisy is the result of the fear of man. And rather than hiding behind this mask of hypocrisy because we fear men, let's honor God and trust Him. And let Him purify us and transform us in the image of Christ. Jesus is going to give a three-step plan to combat the fear of man in his children. Those who live in a hostile world. Now, we're only going to get through the first one this morning. And that is, fear God, don't fear man. Fear God, don't fear man. What's the first step in, in fighting the fear of man in a hostile world? Fear God, don't fear man. 
Sort of like uh, verse 4 is the is what Jesus says here. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do to you. No more than they can do. It's sort of like the asking the rhetorical question, well, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst they can do to you? Kill you? Yeah. Yeah. Now notice Jesus isn't saying here, if you just live a righteous life, nothing bad is going to happen to you. He's, he's exactly, actually saying the opposite. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You're living in a hostile world. They are going to attack you. And listen, what's the worst they can do? All they can do is kill you. Yeah, they could. And Jesus knows the group he's talking to and the ones beyond them that will come to saving faith. He knows that some of them will be beaten to death. Some of them will be stoned to death. Some of them will be crucified. Some will have their heads removed. Some will be sawn in half. Some will be imprisoned. Some will be beat with a cat of nine tails. Some will be burned at the stake. And any other number of creative ways human beings have found to torture and kill Christians. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. But death is not something for the Christian that we have to fear. Death is a once in a lifetime event. You're only going to die if you're saved one time. You're only going to die once. Oh, wait, well, hey, I, I was dead. I, they resurrected me. I you know, put the paddles on me. I, you know what I mean. You're only going to complete the process of death one time. And then after that, what can people do? Even if they kill you for being a Christian. And then they drag your body through the city streets. What do you care? You're gone. You're in heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Looks like that would hurt. No big deal. That's Jesus' point. The worst they can do to you is kill you. And that just means you get to go be with the Lord. Not so bad. Don't fear those people. Well, they might say something mean to me. They might criticize me. They might not, they might not want to be my friend anymore. They might laugh at me behind my back. They may say mean things. Yeah, they might. Let's take the might off the table. They will. People will. Rather than fearing men who can only kill you, Jesus says in verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You're going to be afraid of somebody? You'd be afraid of God. Don't fear man. All they can do is kill you. They have no control over you after that. They have no control over your eternal destiny. You fear the one who does. You fear the one who can let you into heaven or send you to hell. It only makes sense for people to fear God. He's the only one with the power that extends beyond death. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ought to be afraid of that. If you're going to be afraid of something, be afraid of that. What if... What if I end up in the hands of God? You want to learn to fear God? Read Jonathan Edwards' 
sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Speaking of final judgment, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with flame, I mean, sorry, with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's fearful. Now, the fear of God has been downplayed in, in the last dozen or so years. In an effort to make God seem nicer, more approachable, less fierce. So they've taken the fear of God and, and substituted that with awe. Well, that just means you need to be in awe of God. And it's, and it's digressed to the point of like somebody has awe when they see a, the, a beautiful mountain. Or they're in awe of the power of the ocean, or in awe of the vastness of space, and they see all these things. Ah, oh, that's really something. Oh, look, the, there's a beautiful mountain. Look at the vastness of space. Oh, look at God. Now, the word fear for God does include awe, but the awe of God includes fear. I like the way one author defined it. He said, awe is an emotion in which dread, veneration, and wonder are all mingled. We have that fear, that legitimate quaking, and that respect all mixed together. He went on to say this, awe has damaged, or I'm sorry, awe was damaged in the churches, destroyed by the electronic church, Awe has been replaced by good feelings toward oneself and God by a happy face image of God. God's just a smiley face instead of a vengeful judge who wreaks havoc on those who reject him and those who disobey him. Whatever happened to the fear of God like Moses had? When he approached the burning bush and heard the voice of God, he refused to look up for fear that he might see God. Or Isaiah, who in Isaiah 6 sees the throne of God coming and God on the throne and he looks up and he said, or looks down and says, woe to me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees God and he's terrified. I am a sinner. In the presence of God, this will not work. I get the impression from some people's definition of fear of God, they would see what Isaiah saw and said, cool throne. Is it comfortable? Can I sit on it? Instead of being afraid. Fortunately, God had a plan for Isaiah's life and would say, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah would say, here am I, send me. What about Simon Peter, who after using Simon's boat as a floating pulpit, Jesus says, launch out into the deep a little bit further. And Peter says, I've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing. 
And Jesus says, throw your net over the side, and it catches such an amount of fish. It's unbelievable, and it's instantaneous that Peter falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's the kind of fear of God we're to have. That we respect God so much, that we honor Him so much, that He deserves so much glory, that when we're confronted by Him, we would fall on our face and say, go away from me, I'm this sinner. Proper fear of man frees, or proper fear of God rather, frees us from the uh, fear of man. You cannot fear God and man at the same time. Because you will fear one of them to the exclusion of the other. If your fear of man is so strong, you will not fear God enough. And if your fear of God is strong enough, you don't care what men say. Develop your fear of the Lord and you will never live in fear of man. Now, while we should fear God, He loves us so much that He doesn't want us to live in dread. He wants us to embrace Him as a loving Father. There is a way to properly fear God and yet see Him as a loving Father. When I was a kid, maybe I'd have a friend or usually my older brothers would try to get me to do something that I knew was wrong. And there were times when I had enough common sense to say no. I'm not going to do that because if I get caught, my dad is going to kill me. I never said, by the way, parents, you can take this for what it's worth. If I get caught, my dad's going to make me sit in the happy chair. Never said that. My dad will kill me. Now, I didn't have to walk around in fear all the time of my dad. I didn't, I wasn't afraid that every time I saw my dad, he was going to smack me or abuse me or yell at me or be mean for no reason. Without being provoked by something that I did, he was my loving dad. I could crawl up in his lap. So the only time I had to be afraid of him is when I was being disobedient. And then I had a reason to be afraid. It was a proper fear. My choices determined whether my dad was loving dad or terrifying judge. Jesus wants us to have that relationship with God as loving father, not terrifying judge. But we need to take sin in our lives seriously enough that we see God as the terrifying judge that prompts us to repentance and turning away from that sin so that we can have that relationship with him as loving father. Verse 6. Here's the illustration about God's love for us. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The illustration is there's cheap birds, little birds, little sparrows. You can buy five of them for two cents. They're not very expensive birds. They're practically giving them away. And Jesus' illustration is from the greater or from the lesser to the greater. If God is so concerned that he understands when a sparrow dies or what that sparrow does, this cheapo bird... How much more is he interested in those who were created after his image? He knows everything about you. His his knowledge of us is intimate and detailed. 
much more than our own knowledge of ourself. God knows us much greater than we know ourselves. The illustration, he knows how many hairs are on your head. All your hair is numbered. They say the average person has about 100,000 follicles of hair. I have no idea if that's true of me. It's probably less from doing this. But God knows how many there are when I lay down at night. He knows how many are there when I get up in the morning. He knows how many hair is left on my head after I take a shower. He knows how many hair is left after I rake my comb through it. And I mean, I can't even tell you how much hair from my wife is on the bathroom floor. So God is keeping track of all of those things. That's how well he knows us. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Now, when you're living with him as your loving father, that's a great comfort. Nothing escapes the knowledge of God. He knows everything I'm going through. He knows everything I'm facing, everything I will face. God loves me. That's great. But if you're acting the spiritual hypocrite, that should terrify you. Because God knows everything about you. There's nothing he doesn't know. So if you're trying to live your life as a spiritual hypocrite, that ought to terrify you and you ought to see God as that fierce judge to prompt you to turn from your sin. We don't have to live in terror of God's judgment because the sin has already been judged on the cross. For that reason, Jesus says, do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. should be a great comfort. You're worth more than a handful of birds to God. Should be comforting. How valuable? Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You're more valuable than many sparrows. How valuable? So valuable that God gave his son for you. So that you could be saved. So that all your sin could be forgiven. So that he could be your loving father. So that you wouldn't have to live in the fear of men. That you don't have to live as the spiritual hypocrites do. Thinking that they can just fool enough people for long enough that God will let them in. You can live in open... uh, Open... Uh, nests before God where you're just saying, God, here I am. I'm a sinful person. God, here's my struggles. Here's my weaknesses. God, take them. Use me however you can. Purify me. Take away this sinful activity, thoughts, desires in my life. I don't care what other people think. God, I care what you think. We live in a world that opposes Christ and all who truly follow him. And God may or may not deliver us from the hatred of this world. Some of us will live our life and and die and go be with the Lord having never experienced the hatred that people in this world have for Christians. Some of us will experience it. We'll be the objects of their hatred, their animosity. God may choose to reveal all of our wickedness and he may choose not to. 
But our lives don't need to be controlled by the fear of man. Of what will people think? What will people say? It ought to be controlled by our fear of God. And what does he think? What would he say? And all that's tempered by his love for us. Which is more powerful than all the other things. He loves us enough for us to tell him, God, here's my struggle. You already know it anyway. I'm not keeping a secret from you. Here's my struggle. Help me. Better to be honest with God and get the refining help than being the hypocrite who continues to try to fool him. There's peace in knowing that God knows us. When we're, when our sin is confessed, there's peace. And knowing that God's eye is on the sparrow, and I know He watches me. Listen, if you're out here today, you're struggling with sin, welcome to the club. You're not fooling God. He already knows. He already knows what you do in secret. He already knows what you do when you don't think anybody else knows what you do. He already knows what you think. He already knows how you feel. He already knows your doubts. But he's offering grace and forgiveness for those who come to him by faith. And he's offering the continual cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in our life if we will confess our sins and repent. He's already started that transforming work in your life if you'll just submit to it and let him do the work and not care what other people think. Get the help you need. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's available for you to call upon him and be saved. That's him right now. You should answer that. I can't believe that timing worked. That was. <laughs> Jesus is talking to his disciples and us by extension that you're going to be in a hostile world and you have a choice to make. You're going to live your life in fear of what men will do or say. Or you're going to live your life in fear of what God does and says. Ladies and gentlemen, choose the fear of God. Choose to surrender to Him. Don't live in fear of man. If you're not saved, don't let the fear of man keep you from coming to saving faith today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy upon us. So grateful, Father, that you love us enough to send your Son, your perfect Son, who knew no sin, to become sin for people like us. Father, we don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. If we did, it would be neither grace nor mercy. Father, we deserve your wrath. We deserve your anger. 
But Father, you've chosen to show us your love in Christ. Knowing all along who we were, what we would struggle with. So Father, I pray for those who belong to you that we would no longer hide our sin from you. But Father, confess it, repent. Father, not try to fool others into thinking we're something that we're not. Father, trusting you enough to be vulnerable, to share our struggles, to ask somebody to pray for us and with us and hold us accountable. Father, let us not be men and women who live in the fear of men and that keep us silenced or that keeps our growth stunted. But Father, let us live in a way that glorifies you, that fears and respects you and Father basks in your great love, your love that overcomes all of our sin. Your love that never ends because of our sin. That you love us in spite of it. And you would love to transform our lives. Father, let us be people who truly look to Christ. Who desire to be like you. And are willing to put in the work. Father, for anyone that is here that doesn't know you as Lord, I pray that you would... Remove the fear of man that holds them captive to this world. Father them, Father, empower them by your spirit and bring them to saving faith. For your glory and their good. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.